We're going to be looking at uh, the remainder of our uh, week one-week session, uh, minus uh, one one time, on three resurrections, and there is a lot to cover today, and, and I want to get to it. Uh, we have uh, uh, the general concept of resurrection that we have been talking about throughout the week, the fact that, uh, and every Christian uh, would believe this, in fact, every Every uh, Jew who expected the Lord Jesus Christ believed uh, in the resurrection of the dead. And in fact, there are quite many uh, unbelieving people who who do believe in the resurrection of the dead. And I also want to point out to you that it is not only a believer who will be raised from the dead. Every human being uh, who's ever lived will be raised from the dead and then will face judgment. So, the resurrection is uh, one of those uh, facts that uh, is certain, uh, like death, uh, for every every person, and uh, we'll all uh, be raised. Now the question is, well, what within the concept of that of that the dead rise? Uh, what details are there for us to understand? And the first detail, so the so the the idea that every person rises from the dead and is judged, uh, that's the most elementary or the first of the three resurrections that we're talking about. The second is that Jesus Christ rose out from the dead and as such was the first of the first fruits of those who sleep. And so he is the first of the first fruits. He will have the first fruits with him and then there will also be a harvest associated with him. And that is a first resurrection or the first resurrection. The first resurrection, uh, there is, there are, the first resurrection has elements. For each of the three unique kinds of people there are uh, in the world, there are three kinds of people. There are Jews, who are distinct from everybody else, who are Gentiles, and distinct from both of those two groups, but taken out from both of those two groups, the Jew first and also the Gentile, is the Church of God. And so those three people are unique, and if you're a Jew who's received Christ as his Savior, you're no more a Jew. Your friends who tell you so are right. You're not a Jew anymore. You're, you're a child of God. You're a Christian. You're in the Church of God. If you're a Gentile and you have received Christ as your Savior, you are no more a Gentile. Uh, the Jewish person who tells you you're a Gentile is incorrect. Your Gentile friends who tell you that you're they're you're one of them, are incorrect, you are in the church of God. This idea that is, uh, I think, getting actually a rapid gain, I when I spent some, uh, some two weeks in Israel, I found it to be very, very troublesome, uh, this notion that the church consists of both Jew and Gentile. Uh, the church actually consists of neither Jew nor Gentile. Now, you may think I'm I'm picking a nit. I'm not. Uh, God broke down the middle wall of uh, of partition that 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 divided the two, and He made Himself one new man, not two new men. Nor nor did He uh, uh, re- reserve two old men. He made one new man in Christ, and we're neither Jew nor Gentile, but a new man in Christ. And of course, the strife that is uh, between us is only put away in Christ and in the the thought that we are neither Jew nor Gentile. I, did, I found that being effaced 
among the believers, uh, among the Christians, when I was in Israel, and I found it very difficult. Uh, I found my fellowship with them very difficult. I, in fact, I, I felt like I was in some kind of uh, Galatian uh, uh, pit, uh, and I had a very difficult time with the notion that there are Christian, that there are Gentile Christians and there are Jewish Christians. It's just not the case. Well. Uh, that that understanding of the of the first resurrection and that understanding that there are three three different people in the world as as according to First Corinthians chapter ten, both of those notions, both of those understandings, help us to uh, rightly divide the word of truth, and then we can look at its details, and then we can find the third resurrection referenced as a phrase. Only in one place, only referenced in Philippians 3.11, where we find a unique phraseology in the, in the Greek, the ex anastasis, eknekron, or the standing up, out from the dead, the outstanding of those standing up, out from the dead. And so we have two, uh, two ek or ex, uh, prepositions there to let us know that there are those who come out from among the dead, as our Lord Jesus Christ did, part of the first resurrection, and then there are those who come out from that, which is the thing that the apostle hoped to attain, is to be outstanding, the way, I'm, the way I've been putting it this week, is to be outstanding in the first resurrection. And that's Philippians 3.11. Then we looked at the fact that this time of knowing whether or not we'll be, we are outstanding in the, in the first resurrection is the time of the judgment seat of Christ, and every child of God will appear there. We shall all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And I suggest to you that it's a historical time. For us all to appear, we'll appear together. For us all to do it, it will have to be a historical time when the entire, uh, when every, every Christian... When every child of God in, of this particular time, everyone in the church of God, uh, is collected together to be judged by our Lord Jesus Christ, that is when we w- he receives us unto himself, and we meet him in the air, and the judgment seat of Christ commences. And uh, I've even pointed out that sometimes during the past couple of weeks that it is a unhappy circumstance that we become preoccupied with those who will be left behind, with the the coming of the man of sin, and so forth, because our preoccupation as heavenly people should be with the heavenly event that is before us. And I'll also point out that it is a schismatic matter that so many of us Christians are on different hopes. Uh, I I, I find myself uh, saddened, for example, by the recent disputation raised up by those who would who would be classifying themselves as as neo reformers or dominion theologists who accuse those of us who who look at the scriptures and say we need to be heavenly minded we're ambassadors from heaven we're a heavenly people and they tell us that we're neglecting the affairs of the earth and that we should uh do this and that and it always comes down to electing this one or that one uh in fact we try to be faithful to our ambassadorial call 
I can tell you, uh, as I've had extensive experience overseas, uh, I've spent uh, a good part of my last 10 years uh, in, in um, overseas in, involved in uh, East Africa, in Kenya, East Africa. And I can tell you that it can happen uh, to be that it's diplomatically incorrect to become too involved as a diplomat in the affairs of the country of which you're not a citizen. Now, the Scripture tells us that our citizenship, this is in Philippians chapter 1, that our citizenship is in heaven. Literally, that's what it means. Our citizenship is in heaven, and in and in in Second uh, Corinthians chapter five, we we understand that we are ambassadors for Christ, and uh, an ambassador is a citizen of another country who resides in uh, a foreign country, and he is representative of the of his home country, and if he gets too involved in the local politics, he's called home. Uh, he's lost his effectiveness. He's lost his mandate. And he can even be expelled. As I say, I've spent about 10 years uh, overseas, uh, my last 10 years, quite involved overseas. And in the course of doing that, I came to learn of an American diplomat who was quite colorful and quite popular uh, among the people of Kenya. A very colorful man, actually a very courageous man in many ways. But here's here's what he did. He got too involved in the local politics. He began to politic against the president of Kenya. He began to politic in favor of certain political uh, needs in Kenya and uh, and attend rallies and uh, even even be uh, something of a leader in such things. Uh, and as such, he became he was rendered ineffective as a diplomat, and so uh, he was not renewed uh, as in as the ambassador. Uh, so uh, I just use that as a personal example that I have that when when you become too involved in the local politics, you become disqualified as an ambassador. We also have the warning, by the way. Uh, uh, three, we have three, three things to, to really be concerned about that we not be affected by uh, in our journey here below as we understand our role according to the Word of God. And those are the three leavens that the Lord warns us about, the leaven of the Pharisees, the leaven of the Sadducees, and the leaven of Herod, and I suggest to you that uh, if one is not careful in one's political involvement, you can be subject to the leaven of Herod. And I'll also suggest to you that we have an excellent example of a man whose faith we're to follow in the life of Abraham. I think we have Abraham in the Old Testament, his faith to follow. We have others also, but Abraham stands out. And we have the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, whose faith we're to follow and he also stands out. And at one point in the Scripture, we can compare and contrast Abraham with his nephew Lot. And where do we find Abraham? But we find him dwelling in tents, out in the wilderness, and and uh, he receives the Lord when he comes. The Lord comes to him, and he receives the Lord along with two angels. And only the two angels come to Lot, and we find Lot as a city councilman in Sodom. And uh, so... Uh, there you have it. We'll move now to our passages because we have uh, not that much time and we have so much to cover. But we're talking now about Paul's drive, therefore, to be outstanding in the first resurrection at the judgment seat of Christ. And he said he 
he follows after, he hopes to attain it, he does not consider that he has already attained or has already uh, received, uh, but in, in so pressing, he forgets those things which are behind and he presses forward to the prize of the calling on high in Christ Jesus. Now, when the Apostle Paul talks about forgetting those things that are behind, I know a lot of times we try to bring comfort one to another by saying, well, forget about your sins that are that are behind. And and there is a lot to be said about that, by the way. Uh, if, if your sins are bothering you uh, th- th- and you have a bad conscience because of them, uh, confess those to the Lord. <clears throat> you can just do that, just you and the Lord. I do not advise you to necessarily confess your sins to men. In fact, uh, you must regard the conscience of the other person before you would do such a thing. If you're having significant trouble, talk to a man of God with the Word of God. Uh, but uh, we can freely come uh, to the throne of grace. It is we are uh, the, the the Lord Jesus Christ has gone has gone has torn the veil. Uh, we can go to Him at any time. We can confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, giving us a restoring to us the good conscience which has been given to us when we receive Christ as our Savior. And so that script, but the scripture that the apostle talks about, forgetting those things that are behind and pressing forward uh, to the prize of the high calling, has to do really with forgetting his his accomplishments that are past. Uh, it's, he's not talking there about his failures. He's talking about his accomplishments. He's saying that, well, so far I have come uh, well, but I do not consider myself to have to to have attained or to build up some kind of store of goodwill or some kind of store of achievement or accolade i regard uh, nothing of that past but i press forward realizing that as long as i'm sucking wind i can be disqualified and disqualified for what well disqualified to rule and to reign with the lord jesus christ in his coming kingdom. We're all going to be in the coming kingdom. We're all going to have resurrection bodies in his coming kingdom. We're not going to reign without him. And that's why it is that, that the rewards that are noted in Scripture are crowns. Crowns have a purpose. Crowns are not given out uh, uh, willy-nilly. Crowns are given to signify those who will rule, those who reign. That's who wears crowns. You don't decide today, I'm going to wear a baseball cap, tomorrow I'll wear a top hat, oh, I think I'll wear a crown today. No, you, a crown is a, is a symbolic uh, hat or, or covering of a head, and it symbolizes one who rules. Whether they be literal hats that we get or not, I know not. Uh, I don't care as long as I, what I do care about is qualifying to reign with, with my Lord Jesus Christ and I care that he will say to me one day, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Now I have not heard him say that to me. Uh, you may say, Oh, you have done very well. That means nothing to me. You may say, You have done very poorly. That doesn't mean anything to me either. I may think I have done well. I may think I have done poorly. None of those matter. What matters is how the Lord judges, and he judges in his time at the judgment seat of Christ and we look forward to that. Now, we have in Scripture, and we're in Romans now, chapter 8, and in verse 17, we have the, the, the phrase that I took up yesterday. We have the verse, 
and if children, then heirs, heirs of God. But, and I'm, I'm, I'm reading this the way I believe the construct would have us to read it, but joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we co-endure, that we may also be co-glorified. We have here two distinct things to think about, and the construct of the language gives us distinction. On the one hand, if children, then heirs. Now you can hear people tell you that if doesn't necessarily mean if, if may mean since. Actually, none of that is exactly accurate. If always means if. If always means that uh, that uh, given a dependent given an independent variable, the dependent variable will follow. It is just uh, as logical. It is pure logic. Logic translates into all languages easily. The the, the independent variable. If children, the dependent variable heirs. If children, then heirs. Else, or also, uh, if joint heirs. Um, excuse me. If children, then heirs, heirs of God. And if we co-endure, and if if we co-endure with Him, then joint heirs with Christ. So we have distinguished a general heirship. Of, from God, and then we have the joint heirship with Christ. You say, well, what is the difference? Well, I think the difference is best understood when we consider that uh, Christ is the firstborn from the dead. He's the only begotten Son of the Father, but he's the firstborn from the dead. And as such, our Lord Jesus Christ uh, inherits the rights of the firstborn. And the rights of the firstborn were three. The firstborn had was... was, was uh, uh, had the right of uh, the rulership in the family in the absence of the father or in the place of the father. It doesn't have to be the absence of the father. In the place of the father, the firstborn was the designated ruler. In the in the place of the father, the firstborn is the designated priest. And in the place of the father, the firstborn, inheritance-wise, didn't just receive a single portion but received a double portion. And so the, all of these, as you as you read through the Scripture, you see firstborns failing to obtain these. You see secondborns and lastborns, or nearly lastborns, coming into these things. In the family of, of Israel, for example, you see the forfeiture of these rights by Simeon. You see that, Ju- that, the, that the three uh, pieces of this airship were carved up. The priesthood given to Levi, the rulership given to Judah, and the double portion given to Joseph through Ephraim and Manasseh. And so you see that the firstborn rights and privileges is is, is given to the firstborn. Now, our Lord Jesus Christ, of course, forfeited nothing, being without sin, failing in nothing, unable to sin, by the way. The Lord Jesus Jesus Christ uh, certainly fulfilled all all his rights as the firstborn from the dead, and and all in and he has perfectly won all of those rights. And the happy news for us Christians is that we can be joint heirs with him. As he's the firstborn of many brethren, we can be joint heirs with him if we fulfill the conditions upon which that joint heirship is predicated. And what is the condition that is predicated here in 
Romans chapter 8, verse 17, that we co-endure, that we co-endure. We're looking at Romans chapter 8. We see the joint heirship of Christ. We see the, 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 that our Lord Jesus Christ is the firstborn from the dead, and as such he has the, the privileges of the firstborn, which is the double portion, which is rulership, and which is the priesthood. And, of course, the book of Hebrews is very helpful in all of these things, but especially the book of Hebrews lays out the, the fact that our Lord Jesus Christ, coming from the ruling root of Israel, Lord Jesus Christ born out of the tribe of Judah, he is the lion of the tribe of Judah, he's out of the house of David, and so he qualifies to be the ruler in Israel, and he is the ruler of Israel. He's the king of the Jews, uh, he's king of kings, he's lord of lords, and uh, also he is uh, not merely like Melchizedek, a priest of God, but he is the high priest after the order of Melchizedek, and so he is the highest order high priest. And uh, by the way, he's not a high priest to everyone, but he's a high priest over his own house, which is the house of God, which is the church of God, the pillar and support of the truth. If you don't know Jesus Christ as Savior, you need a high priest, but you don't have one, so why don't you receive Jesus Christ? Uh as your Savior, and then you'll have a high priest making intercession for you, and also, not only will you have an advocate with God the Father in heaven, but you will also be given an advocate here below to uh, comfort you and to call you alongside of our Lord Jesus Christ that you may walk. Why don't you do that? Well, you know why you don't do it. If you don't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, it's because you love your sins and uh, even though they're destroying you. So quit being your own worst enemy and and receive Christ as your Savior, and then let us know, and we'll try to help you. We're now, now having been looking at Romans 8.17 about the joint heirship with Christ, the general heirship with God, unconditional, having attached to the gift of God, which is eternal life, the joint heirship with Christ, conditional upon our enduring with him, that is to say, with the qualitative way in which we live our Christian life. Now, some people would say, well, you are teaching a doctrine of works. That's right, I am. All Christians need to have a doctrine of works. They need to be taught about the proper place of works. I am not teaching that you need to work for eternal life. I, am, I do teach that somebody has to work for eternal life, and that the Lord Jesus Christ did that, as he said. My Father works hitherto, and I work. I get a little bit of a, a, little bit of a light sense, a little bit of a humorous sense, out of the ongoing controversies about the Sabbath. Should we keep the Sabbath? Uh, do we meet uh, on the first day of the week? Of the, of the week? Do we meet on the Sabbath day? Uh, all, all about the Sabbath keeping. Let me tell you something about Sabbaths. Uh, the Sabbath was broken with sin, and the Lord Jesus Christ said, My Father works hitherto, and I work. Uh, the, the, the Sabbath was destroyed by man. God made the Sabbath for man that he might enjoy God, 
and, and fellowship with God. But he destroyed that with his disobedience. And even those of us who haven't sinned after the similitude or the likeness of Adam's sin, we still do sin. And we have destroyed our uh, any possible fellowship that we can have with God until he restores it. And had he not gone back to work after the seventh day, we would not have any possibility of rest with God. Now, that being said, we want to look at the book of Hebrews chapter 4 and see what it is about the Sabbath. And I'm just going to read uh, a bit longer than I usually do uh, so that we can get the context here. Maybe some of you are inconvenienced. You can't uh, turn to your turn to the scriptures because you're driving in your car and and then and you need one hand on the wheel while you have the other hand on the cell phone or sandwich that you're eating or whatever. Just kidding a little. Uh, Hebrews chapter 4, Let us therefore fear, lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. Now, here, uh, we're, there's a warning. You may come short of the rest of God. And, and uh, so we'll read on. For unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them, but the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. For for we which have believed do enter into rest, as he said, as I have sworn in my wrath, if they shall enter into my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. Now, that's a very interesting phrase, and you may remember this, that Israel is chosen, in, is cho- is, or, or God's chosen people, from the foundation of the world. So are the believing Gentiles, are chosen from the foundation of the world. Christians are chosen in Christ Jesus when? Before the foundation of the world. Now, we could talk about the foundation of the world. In fact, I think we will talk about the foundation of the world. We'll take up some of this, these thoughts next week and, and, and take this, this uh, phrase apart a little bit and find out what this foundation of the world really is, because I think we talk about it in ignorance so much. But uh, here and now it reads, verse 4, For he spake in a certain place of the seventh day on this wise, and God did rest the seventh day from all his works. And in this place again, if they shall enter into my rest. So here are two references to the rest of God. The first reference is the seventh day uh, out of Genesis uh, chapter 2, the seventh day of of the so-called creation. Uh, the, the, so, the, the seventh day of the making and forming of the heavens and the earth, uh, n- not, uh, not the creating of the heavens and the earth, at least in my view, but the making and forming of the heavens and the earth. Uh, this is the seventh day, uh, and it's quoted in verse 4. And then in verse 5, is um, it says, and in this place again, if they shall enter into my rest, and so we find uh, uh, this this now uh, a condition that 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 was given to Israel. Verse six: Seeing therefore it remains that some must enter therein, and they to whom it was first preached entered not in because of unbelief. Again, he limited a certain day, saying in David, "Today, after so long a time, as it is said, 
Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, then would he not afterward have spoken of another day? Therefore there, a re- there remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. For he that is entered into his rest, he also has ceased from his own works at God, as God did from his. Let us labor therefore to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the example of unbelief. Now, we have a complex passage here. We have a very difficult passage here. We have some things to observe. We have to take it apart carefully, as God would would have us to be workmen in such matters. There here is a rest, and it is a rest that remains. I think the first thing we want to put our we want to put our pegs in the ground here that it's a rest that remains. Verse six: Seeing therefore it remains that some uh, must enter therein, and they to whom it was first preached entered not in because of unbelief. We have a remaining rest. Verse 9, Therefore there remains a rest to the people of God. Now, we have several pieces to take apart here. First of all, God rested on the seventh day. That's the picture that requires fulfillment. And we we remember that a day with the Lord is a thousand years, a thousand years is as one day, the seventh day God rested. There is a rest. Uh, I, I can equate this rest easily through that understanding of Scripture with the 7,000th year of human history. This is what we call the millennium. That's a, that's a Latin word, combination word for 1,000 and years, millennium. It is the thousand years referenced in the in the book of the Revelation, it is the thousand years referenced in the psalm. This is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Uh, it is the it is the day referenced when when the voice of the Lord in the Lord Jesus Christ in the book of Hosea says, "I go away for two days. The third day uh, I, I'll return. You'll rejoice in it. You'll rise again." It is that seventh day of human history where at the at the onset of that of that last day all Israel will be saved the church of God already having been collected together with our Lord Jesus Christ and qualified to reign with him and the gentiles who had believed in the past being raised and those Jews and gentiles who come those Jews who had believed in the Lord Jesus Christ such as David such as Moses such as Daniel being raised and the gentiles who both who came through the the time of the end when when Israel's tribulation comes upon them, as well as Rahab the harlot, Nebuchadnezzar, other Gentiles who believe, will be raised. And in that coming kingdom, there will be Christians, the heavenly people, there will be Jews, the earthly people, and there will be Gentiles also having their place in the first resurrection, in rulership, reigning with our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that is the rest that remains. And, 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 of course, we know that there's a rest because it's pictured in the creation, and we know it's for the people of God because the, the, it, it, the, the Word of God tells us the only thing we have to find out now is, has that been fulfilled? Has it been fulfilled? Well, God would have fulfilled it, as it were, to the nation of Israel when they came out of Egypt, had they endured... 
But did they endure? They all believed. They all came under the blood in Egypt. They all came out in the wilderness. But did they please God? Did they endure in faith? Did they walk by faith and not by sight? No, they didn't. They failed in the wilderness. They failed to endure because they, and by the way, the reason they failed is because they refused to believe the forward-looking truth. They refused to believe the Word of God, not with reference to coming out of Egypt, but with refer- they believed to they refused to believe the Word of God with respect to entering into the Promised Land. And their point of failure was at Kadesh Barnea when they came there, and instead of just going in, they said, we'd like to send spies, we'd like to have a report concerning this land, and ten spies went in, and ten came out with an evil report, an unbelieving report, and two, Joshua and Caleb, came with a believing report. And what report concerning that coming age did those people believe? They believed the wrong report, and they refused to believe in faith the report concerning the coming age, and with respect to the promised land, they failed to endure, and they perished in the wilderness. And therefore, there remained a rest to be entered into, even in the time of David, where where David said, and according to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 7, again, he limiteth to a certain day, saying in David, Today, after so long a time, as it is said, Today, if you'll harden, if you'll hear his voice, harden not your hearts. And now we have the logical conclusion in verse 8. For if Joshua had given them rest into the promised land, then he would not have afterwards spoken of another day in David. And, of course, that's just logical. If if Joshua had given rest to the people of God when he brought the, if that was the rest being fulfilled when they finally did go into the promised land, David would not yet be talking about it so many years later. And, of course... David did not bring the children of Israel into rest. There remaineth therefore, now the logical conclusion of verse 9, there remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. So some people say, well, are you a Sabbath keeper? Well, it depends what you mean. If you mean, do I care if I meet starting Friday night, uh, Saturday? No, no, I'm not. If you mean, do I think there's been a new Sabbath, which means seventh, I don't know how people get this. There's a new Sabbath, which is the first day of the week. I don't know how seven becomes one. Oh, you take six away from it, but uh, that's a little bit strange. No. Uh, do I think uh, the, the Christian Sabbath is a Sunday? No. I think Christians are free to meet whenever they want. In fact, even those early Christians who determined that somehow in their minds that, uh, that, that, that the first day of the week was the one most honoring for them to meet, uh, uh, believed it was the eighth day, not the first day. So, so uh, well, we could go into some of those things, but we won't uh, spin our wheels on trivial matters. The thing that's not trivial is the rest that remains, or the seventh 1,000th years, of which we're in jeopardy on how we will be in that time. Will we rule and reign with our Lord Jesus Christ or no? Well, what is the application here in Hebrews chapter 4? It says... Verse 10, he that has entered into his rest has also ceased from his own works as God did from his. Now, I have not entered into my into that rest yet. Uh, I've ceased from the works of the flesh, 
but I still have works that God has prepared for me to walk in. And those are my works to walk in. I'm not going to be judged according to your works. I'm not going to be judged according to the works that someone else walks in. I'm not going to be judged according to the works God has prepared for me to walk in. I am going to be judged according to the works that I do. Not with respect to eternal life. And I shouldn't have to always say that, but I do have to always say that. I won't be respected, judged in the matter of eternal life, but I will be judged according to my works in the matter of whether I have pleased God in the way I've lived my Christian life and whether or not I will jointly reign with Christ in the coming day. Uh, we'll take up one more verse in Hebrews chapter 4, and then I want to get to Matthew chapter 11 so that we can close this up, and uh, hopefully you'll see this because I would have that your faith stands in God's Word. Uh, I'm certainly not embarrassed about teaching it here, and I have nothing, uh, I'm not going to argue with myself about what I'm saying, but I will tell you that it's important for your faith to rest in the Word of God, and I want to help you see these things from the Scriptures, but even even if I help you see them from the Scriptures, you will you need to see them from the Scriptures yourself, and uh, you'll know... Uh, that what I'm saying is true because God will make that plain to you and clear to you in faith. So we look now, uh, we're talking about Christians must have a doctrine of works. In fact, not only Christians need a solid teaching of where works fit into the Christian life, and of course even our works are by grace through faith, and they must be or they're worthless, uh, but not only Christian, do Christians need a solid doctrine of works, which I trust I'm giving off, but we also need a pattern of works. That is to say, uh, we should show the example of those works and have a pattern of them in our lives. And what are those works? Well, they're the works that God has prepared for us to walk in uh, according to his divine plan for our lives, and only he can do that. So he that has entered into his rest, verse 10 of Hebrews 4, has ceased from his own works as God did from his. But I haven't entered into the rest that this is talking about. And so I haven't ceased from my own works, but I still work. After all, the Lord Jesus Christ said, My Father worketh hitherto, and I work. And the Lord Jesus Christ saved me. Uh, he found me when, when I was younger, when I was 24 years old. And that's been uh, 28 years ago. And uh, I'm still working. And, uh, in fact, uh, the Bible says if a man doesn't work, neither let him eat. So I, uh, you might guess I'm still eating also. But uh, not by bread alone does man live, but by every word of God. We look here now at verse 11. And in case you wonder if I'm making the proper application, this is the application that the Scripture makes in the next verse. Let us labor, therefore... Let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest. Now, this is a rest not entered. This is a rest that we have to labor to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. What example of unbelief? The great example of unbelief for which uh, the scriptures were written concerning the children of Israel in the wilderness. This is exactly what First Corinthians chapter nine teaches us. This is exactly what First Corinthians, excuse me, chapter ten teaches us, as it details the abysmal failure of Israel in the wilderness after they failed to believe the report concerning things to come, 
at Kadesh Barnea. I'll I'll be giving more on those of those details as uh, our Bible study continues uh, next week. But uh, now you say, well, now I've always heard that we have entered into rest. And now you're saying you haven't entered into rest. Which is it? Have you entered into rest or have you not entered into rest? And my answer to that is yes. I have entered into rest and I have not entered into rest. So how's that for an answer? That's like someone saying, I understand, I, I understand you to say that, that you're justified by faith, uh, and, and another would say that you're justified by works. Are you justified by works, or are you justified by, uh, are you justified by faith, or are you justified by works? And, of course, the answer is yes, I am justified by faith, and I hope to be justified by works, just as Abraham was justified by faith and then justified by works many years later when he offered Isaac up on the altar. I am justified by faith. I have works to walk in, and I hope that the justification of my work results, as it did for Abraham, in the Lord giving me the accolade that I am the friend of my Savior, who is my friend. Matthew chapter 11. Here's a very popular verse but one that we often simply overlook. Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, Come unto me, all ye that are labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. There's the gift of God. What is the gift of God? It is eternal life. Come to me, and I will give you rest. And of course, that's absolutely true. If you will come to Christ, if you will receive Christ as your Savior, if you will abandon your means of salvation, if you will quit trying to work for eternal life, if you will simply receive the Lord Jesus Christ as the one who died for your sins, if you believe that he has, raised, that he has risen from the dead, that he's coming again, uh, you can receive him as your Savior, and he will give you rest. And that is verse 28. So there's the rest that is given, and here now, one is rest that is given, and the other is rest that is found. Take my yoke upon you, and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls, or your lives. Let me tell you something. I'm resting in spirit. I've been saved. I have I have a new nature. I have a saved spirit in an in an unsaved body. My body shall be saved. It'll be transformed. It'll be saved from corruption. It'll be saved from morality, uh, mortality. Of that I am certain. But now I have this life that has been given to me. I have this Christian life. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls, or to your life. This is a rest to be found. One is a rest given. One is a rest found. How is it found? Friends, it's found easily. It's found easily. It's found simply. Take my yoke. The Lord says, 
Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. I'll give you rest. Why are you labored? Why why are you laboring and heavy laden? Because you have a great weight of the works of the flesh that you have conducted your entire life. That great heavy burden of the works of the flesh, you cash those works in. You cease from, you, you find that the Lord died because of those things because of those labors that you now have, because of that great burden that you have due to, the, due to sin. And he'll give you rest. He'll forgive you all your sins. And now you will have no more burden, and you'll have no more laborious obligation, and you'll be free from your burden. Now you have a decision and a choice to make. Take my yoke upon you. Now the Lord offers to you his yoke. What is his yoke? Follow me. What is his yoke? It is the way of the cross. What is his yoke? Well, learn of him. Doesn't he learn about him? It says learn of him. Learn of him. Walk the way he walked. Walk where he walked. The will of the Father, the way of the cross, the life of rejection. We find a similar life that the life of David had. You know, David was as a young man. Saul went, uh, Samuel went to, uh, Saul had disqualified himself. Samuel went to visit the house of Jesse, and he looked through all the oldest sons of Jesse, and the Lord told him, nope, none of these are the guy. And then he said, well, I have a son who's tending sheep. Well, go get him. He brings him. He anoints David. David is anointed king. He's the anointed one, but he has to wait. And he now suffers rejection. Saul attacks him. And he is he is attacked and hounded, and he suffers rejection for a portion of his life. I remember when I visited the the area of the cave of Adullam. It was a forsaken area outside Ein Gedi, near the near the um, Dead Sea, a very remote place, a good place to hide. And uh, David was uh, there, uh, hiding so that Saul wouldn't kill him. And all those who were in debt, and all those who were depressed, and all those who were distressed would come and meet with him there in, and, and identify with David in his rejection. And those who identified with David in his rejection, these are they who became the mighty men of David when David set up his kingdom. There we have a wonderful picture of what it means to take the Lord's yoke upon you and learn of him, for he is meek and lowly in heart, and you will find rest the rest that remains, the rest that is yet to be entered into. You'll find rest for your lives. And then we have this wonderful thought. And friends, here is a wonderful thought, if you'll only believe it. And of course, the issue is, will you, not whether you've believed the Lord Jesus Christ is your Savior. Now, that is an issue, but that's not this issue. The issue here is, will you believe the Lord Jesus Christ for that future day? Will you lay aside your desires and your, your, your potential and your ability to achieve and to have what this world has to offer? And will you instead follow and identify with the Lord Jesus Christ in his rejection during this day as those who came to David did? And then it says in verse 30 of Matthew 11, For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I'll tell you something. Though 
identifying with the Lord Jesus Christ will draw to you the hatred of this world, and uh, the the world will not love you, but will forsake you, and and the world will cheat you, and the world will treat you badly because it all the servant is not above his master. The world hated him; it will also hate you. Let me tell you something: there are great enjoyments in having fixed in your mind the wonderful hope uh, concerning the coming day when our Lord Jesus Christ returns. And the enjoyments here today is that he's giving you, given us the, the, uh, the Holy Ghost as our constant companion. He's given us a new nature. He's given us a clear conscience and a good conscience for which men would, would trade all their fortunes and still not get. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. 